Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, the podcast where we've been talking for quite some time now. We have talked about all kinds of topics from exercise to anxiety, prenatal care to presidential elections, physical therapy to potty training, and a whole lot more. We've spoken to women and men from all over the U.S. and around the world about how their lives are connected to pregnancy, parenting, and politics. We've been talking for a current total of 227 episodes. That's five years' worth of conversations about the big and little topics that make our lives work as women, parents, and families. It's been a lot to talk about, right? I am taking this little trip down memory lane right now because pregnancy, parenting, and politics is going on a hiatus. It's time for a break so we can freshen up the conversation. So for the next few months, we won't be interviewing any new guests or producing any new episodes, but we'll continue to highlight episodes on social media and all of our episodes will continue to live online. I hope you'll go on back and give them a listen because if you have a question about your prenatal care or your pregnancy or your body or you want to know something about how the birth industry in America works or about physical therapy and the postpartum period, you have any questions about how you're feeling, your health care, and all of the little politics and policy issues that support us, you know what? We've probably talked about it. So go on back and take a look at the archives and let me know if you have any questions. Um, thank you for joining the conversation, for sharing pregnancy parenting with your friends and family, and uh, for allowing me to be your host in this good long five-year conversation. Together, we're changing the way we talk about pregnancy, parenting, and politics, and we're helping families realize they have choices and decision-making power in all these things. So I thought, since we're going to take a break on these topics for a little bit, I thought it would be good to make our last episode for a while focus on our key topics of pregnancy, parenting, and politics. So this week, we are going to have a second conversation with Emily Tish Sussman, who is a woman whose career I deeply admire. And we're going to talk about the many ways that the COVID relief bill will affect families. But first, let's take a real quick break. All right, we are back and we are ready to chat. Emily Tish Sussman is a Democratic strategist, former vice president of Campaigns for Center for American Progress, and the host of Your Political Playlist, the podcast. She's also the mother of three little, little ones, and she's going to tell us what the new COVID stimulus bill means for you and your family. Let's get Emily on the line. Hi, Emily. It's Jeannie. Jeannie, so good to talk to you again. I know. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. I've heard you. I've listened to your voice on your podcast, but you and I haven't talked in well over a year. Oh, has anything happened in the last year? Same Nothing, old. Same Nothing. Same old. Nothing, right? You know, life. It's so boring. 
<laughs> if only we mixed it up these days. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, for listeners who haven't listened to last year's episode, I do have to ask you the very hard question again. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Emily Tish Sussman. I'm a political strategist and a podcast host. And currently, I'm a mom of three who's hiding in her closet from them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but now I have to ask so many questions. First of all, is the closet outfitted to be your studio? Uh, Yes, but it is also a closet. Like, it is my closet. But we've put up... Yes, I actually have it on my Instagram page of my podcast that I recorded a full intro after episode with my, I mean, I record many things that way. I just kicked my kids out of this room right before this, Um, but (laughs) they're always with me. Uh, But yes, I have a mic in there. It has a little spot in my closet. It is where I record. All right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm really lucky I'm not hiding in the closet, but I've got a little studio, an actual little room. It's so um, cool. It's a good thing. That feels life-changing. But you're in New York, aren't you? Yeah, we've moved out of the city for the year. Our kids are, um, we have three kids now under four and a half, but last year we had a three-week-old baby uh, and three kids under three and a half. And so we left the city and enrolled our kids in a preschool in the suburbs. So it's a pretty unusual year, pretty weird year. We had just moved to New York after living in D.C. for 10 years. So it's been a a year of a lot of transitions, I mean, for everyone in different ways. Well, when we talked last year, we were deep in election season, and we hadn't even seen COVID on the horizon yet. And since then, we've elected a new administration, a new Congress, and you've shifted gears a bit. Your podcast, it used to be your primary playlist, right? And now it's your political playlist? Your political playlist. We've had some rebrands, some rebrands. Yeah. You know, the the idea when I went in, when I created the podcast, the idea was that we were, it's, I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago in terms of mindset, but we were going into the Donald Trump reelection campaign and trying to sort out who would be the best Democratic candidate against Trump with a, such a crowded field. Yeah. And so I, and it felt like all the conversations that I were, ha- that I was having with friends with myself, when we kind of based our, our just thinking about who would be electable based on the last article that we read mm-hmm. and policy, what didn't really have a strong play in our decision-making around who would be the democratic nominee. So my presumption was that we just didn't have a context for understanding the policy proposals that candidates were coming forth with. Um, and we didn't know how they were going to land. So if we, had a, if we were just able to access experts on a large scale and say, hey, I know that candidates have these different policy proposals, but what's realistic? And what's the left proposal? And what's the, what's the middle proposal? And how do they compare to Trump? Then we'd feel like we were better informed to go into the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was called Your Primary Playlist. And that's where we started. Um, and I pulled from guests, most of whom the first, up until actually still, most of them were my friends, is where I pulled guests from. They were women that I have worked with over 15 years of working in politics. And I've been on TV as a political analyst for, at this point, about nine years. And so I prepped for the shows the same way I prepped going on TV. If I was going to do a segment about tax policy, I was going to call my friend who's a tax expert and ask her to explain it to me and ask her to explain 
What are the pitfalls? What are the counter arguments? What are the politics around it? Um, and so it was very important to me when creating the show that all of my experts be women. Yeah, I so, remember that. I love that. I just felt like there are so many women who I know, who I knew, who didn't spend enough time really championing themselves as the experts. They were head down doing the work and then they would just kind of not trumpet themselves enough. And so it became this cycle in policymaking and in Washington where they didn't end up getting the call to testify at the committee because they hadn't put their name on an interview or they had, you know, they'd kind of drafted a quote and let someone else take it. And yeah. so I said, if I'm going to create a platform, it has to be for women. We have to have, we've had, so we've had a hundred percent guests, women, um, majority have been women of color over that we've had uh, over about 60 guests right now. So, you know, when we moved from the primary into the general election, we started looking state by state at swing states and saying, now that we understand the difference in policies, what are the intricacies about these states that are going to decide the election? And how do we contextualize what we know about what happens there politically, the demographics, the voting patterns? Um, and now that we've moved into an actual new administration, we started by going back to all of our policy experts and saying, mm -hmm. hey, you predicted, like, or, you know, you told us what you wanted to see from a dream Democratic proposal from an administration. How are they matching up? Like, how's it going? So we still went back to all of our policy experts. We've had them all on to analyze healthcare policy, immigration policy. Um, we have an interview right now on infrastructure and transportation, broadband, um, and we're expanding. So we've had new experts on to talk about uh, the politics of fashion. We're talking about climate justice. We're talking about the food economy. Um, and so just bringing all of these women experts into the conversation um, and making sure that we're, we're, we're getting it out there and so we can all understand it. And interestingly, we've actually shortened our format because uh, of COVID, that most people listened to my show when they were commuting. So a 30-minute show was the exact right amount of time. And our commutes just don't exist anymore. So we've shortened it to about, you know, 15, 20-minute conversations because um, that's about how long people have to focus on yeah. anything that feels kind of heavy, like policy. Yeah. Although the yeah. conversations are really fun. They sound like this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're interesting. They're really interesting. And, you know, so many of my listeners are still um, new to the idea that politics directly, directly impacts impacts them and their families, you know, they've gone along their entire lives being autonomous people, working on their careers, working on their families, whatever. And all of a sudden they're pregnant or they're new mothers. And now they get it. Now they see that policy really impacts everything, everything from the fact that they could only take a, you know, six week maternity leave, if that, to how to pay for childcare healthcare, economics, all of the issues that you just mentioned. And they're just opening their eyes to the fact that, oh, that's what government is supposed to be for. You yes. know? Yeah. There's so many interesting entry points for people. And, and becoming a parent is a huge entry point for people into advocacy, which you may not necessarily assume just because it's so overwhelming and everything in your life has changed. Yeah. And, but it really is an interesting point for people to get involved. Um, you know, sometimes for parents, it's because they suddenly feel responsible for their children entering the world. And so they want to have 
a world that feels like it will exist, you know, in terms of climate and, and it will feel equitable. There will be opportunities for their kids. Um, and so that's sometimes the entry point for parents, but sometimes it's even before that. And it's things like, it's things like how long you have on paternity leave, if you are um, parental leave, if you have it at all. My mm-hmm. mind goes to paternity leave because I feel so strongly about having equal maternity and paternity leave as a policy matter. I think that women will continue to be held back in the workforce until there is a mandatory paternity leave. Absolutely. And if it's not mandatory, guys aren't going to take it. And so it's pointless. You know? Yeah, exactly. And so the, yeah. the penalty will still be there for women. So I feel extremely strongly about it. My mind goes there immediately as a policy. Yes, I uh, agree but, with you. Yeah, that becomes an, an, a, it's, <clears throat> the culture matters too, unless it's totally mandatory. Yeah, it does. Because otherwise guys think, well, if I take it, then the other people on my team are going to think that, you know, I'm slacking off or, you know. Yeah, you know, I was in, and and it's on us too, you know, to be the consumers and the clients and to be the the managers of the power. Maybe it is attached to money or maybe it is attached to a different kind of power or managers in our own lives. But I mean, I was in a meeting with um, my accountant and he was saying something about, oh, you know, this guy on the team is about to have a baby. He said, congratulations. And he said, but don't worry, he's not going to take the paternity leave. And I was like, you know what? Let's actually pause this conversation for a second. I would feel much more comfortable if he took, if he took the full leave. And yeah. I would not like him to be working during it. I know that you're trying to assure me as the client that he will be available, but I would actually prefer he be spending that time at home. So, you know, right. I mean, there's, there's moments that we can all kind of take. Yeah, absolutely. Small education moments. I bet that, I bet your accountant was surprised. Um, yeah. And actually didn't really know how to respond to it. Like, I don't think it had ever come up in that way. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Unless it's directly pointed out to somebody, they don't really get it. What is paternity leave? It's a very nice way to bond with your baby and advance the agenda for women in the workforce. Right. Exactly. And acknowledge that a lot of things have to be done, especially when you have other kids at home. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. You've got three. So I have they're three, little. They're three and a half years. All three are within three and a half years. So my first was born. I went to the convention to see Hillary Clinton take the nomination. Five days later, I was on CNN and then had the baby. Mm. So that was baby number one. Then we had baby number two at the midterms. So that was, you know, better took back the house. And then baby number three actually saw the inauguration of uh, President Biden. So that's pretty ah, good. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So with each of those times, I mean, anybody who has more than one, more than two, actually, you're, you're in my camp of mother of many now. Um, <laughs> it's that paternity is paternity leave is more important than ever because just try imagining for those those of my listeners that are just having their first you have no idea how hard it is to go to the grocery store to get three little kids under four in car seats to get them into baskets to you know all of it is so yeah. hard you need somebody I know. at home watching the babies i know i remember thinking this time when i <laughs> when i first had her I thought to myself, oh, I just wish I had that luxury of just, you know, being tired and like binge yeah. watching. I watched yeah. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I really liked that. <laughs> I, was, I was really into that. But I didn't have that this time because I had two other kids who were vying for my attention all the time. I mean, the uh-huh. timing for me was was challenging. I had my my third baby in the middle of February. So, um, so New York locked down three weeks later. Yeah. And my milk totally dried up from stress and I couldn't oh breastfeed at all. Because oh it was God. just, you know, just trying to figure out like, how are we going to 
do this. You know, it's just something that we don't think about. And at first, I, my fr- one of my friends gave me really good advice. She said, give yourself 24 hours to be sad about the fact that you're not going to breastfeed this baby anymore uh-huh. and then get over it. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? That's great advice. It is really good advice. There are all kinds of circumstances why women have to stop breastfeeding. And <clears throat> the babies, excuse me, the babies are fine. Formula is a really They're good fine. alternative. They're fine. They're fine. It's it's us that are so I know. traumatized by it. Yeah. I know. I actually, in in hindsight, I had had trouble breastfeeding all three of them and had kind of powered through it. And I actually wish I didn't now. Like once I had to stop it, I had to give all three formula. I didn't make enough, um, like I had to supplement with formula. Uh But once I had to stop with the third, when she was just not eating, I felt like, what was I thinking this entire time? I wish I had stopped earlier with the other two also. Yeah, why do we have to? Beat it just it didn't work like for that. us, and we yeah. beat ourselves up about it. Yeah, yeah another yeah. I, I, have, I have such great smart friends. Another friend of mine said to me, she was had she had sort of written a, a manuscript at one point, and she said that she feels like women, like in our society right now, women of a certain class, not income but class, feel like unless they are really torturing themselves to take care of their kids, they feel like they're not good parents. And right. I thought that was a really interesting point. And I, I, I really identified with that, that I felt like even though I was having so much trouble and my kids were crying and my nipples were bleeding and all of that, I was like, yeah, but I'm now I'm a real mom. Yeah. Yeah. We need the scars to show it. Yeah. Yeah. We got to change that conversation, don't we? Yeah. I, I wish there were some better policy fixes for that because I like to live in policy, but that feels more cultural. I think that the policy should be mom comes first, baby comes next. And that is not the way that we handle anything in the pregnancy and parenting world. It's always about what's best for baby is most important. Well, of course Mm. we want what's best for baby, but what's best for mom trickles down to be best for baby, you know? Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, even when I was talking to the the doctors remotely, obviously, when I was trying to, you know, when my milk was drying up and I was trying to figure out if I could just, if I could really just stop because it, I mean, nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. My doctor, like my OB was like, Emily, what are you thinking? Obviously stop breastfeeding. This is a charade and this is ridiculous. Like stop right away. And the pediatrician said, can you try a little longer? Yeah. 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 Which I mean, I guess it's their job, but. It's their job. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, you know, I mean, I don't want listeners to think that you should just go straight to bottle feeding if, you know, because it's going to be too hard. It's not like that. The majority of women who breastfeed can breastfeed very well, but there are an awful lot of us that have reasons why we have to give it up and it should be just fine. Fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's exactly, it's people would, people said to me, you know, do what works for you. And I don't think I really understood that. Yeah, I don't really understood that my sanity was not one of the things that needed to work for me. Yeah, like I thought it was okay to lose it. Yeah, it's not disposable. We need our sanity. Yeah, and it became more pronounced with the more kids that I had and the older they got. So they actually were, you know, when my second was born, my first was only eighteen months, so he wasn't really that with it. He just needed like a little bit of attention, but then all of a sudden he's three and a half. He oh needs a little God. more attention. He needs, yeah. he can really register what's going on. <laughs> and three-year-olds, four-year-olds, they're trouble, man. They're trouble. <laughs> oh, he's not getting my attention. He is demanding it. <laughs> he will just say the same thing over and over in my face. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Well, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, the hot topic right now, especially on your agenda, which is the uh, 
the COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan. And I was looking at the article that you wrote for Parents Parents Magazine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Parents Magazine. And you mentioned in that before the bill passed, you were talking with women and moms in in your group, politics and activism, about how families of all backgrounds are dealing with the pandemic. And I'm curious, what did you hear from them? And then I want to talk about what's in the bill. Look, everyone is struggling. Everyone's life is going to come out differently from this on the other end. Um, Everyone's assumptions have been uprooted, whether it's where you live, what your family makeup looks like, what your job is, what your childcare looks like. Like all of our assumptions have been really kind of blown up. Yeah. Um, which is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to think about what is really important to us and how do we restructure our lives around it. Mm-hmm. The other day I interviewed uh, Reshma Sanjani who wrote the the moms, uh, the Marshall Plan for Moms. And one of the things, and she has kids around the same age as me, you know, young like mine. And what she said was, you know, the way we worked before was that we saw our kids for maybe half an hour a day. And then we went to spending all day with them. Mm-hmm. And neither one is sustainable. And we don't want either one. And we want something in the middle now, but we're not going to accept going back to seeing our kids for half an hour a day. And, and I think that's right. I think it's an opportunity, but it also means that we need people at the highest levels demanding change um, and in the room who understand what the impact of, of good policies are that will actually make sure we don't see our kids for half an hour a day or have them with us every second of the day. Right. Um, so, you know, when I interviewed Biden's campaign manager and she's deputy chief of staff in the White House, Jen O'Malley Dillon, that was kind of the crux of what I wanted to ask her, is that how are you thinking about policy? Um, and are you really thinking about it in a way that's going to structure it for people, for parents, so that it's not just talking points and it's not just sound bites, but it's actually like getting stuff to happen for people. And one of the greatest things happened during my interview with her is that she has three kids. She's a two-year-old and eight-year-old twins. And during our interview, I was asking, you know, how does she explain her job to her kids, what questions do they ask her? And her twins walked in the room to settle some twin dispute, which felt extremely mm-hmm. familiar to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, you know, I was just asking you what your kids think. Can I ask them? And she was like, absolutely not. Get out of the room, you two. Like, let's get back. <laughs> but if I needed a better example of the fact that someone's trying to fit, you know, someone really at at the table is trying to figure it out, that, that made me feel slightly better better about it. Um, The people at the table have entirely changed. It's women. Yeah. It's It's women women who know. Yeah. It's not just men who have wives at home who are taking care of the childcare and the school pickup and the dentist appointments and all of the million details that we have to manage when we're raising our kids. It's women. They're managing the dentist appointment while they're, you know, helping run the free world. It's, it's moms and it's moms with young kids. Yeah. which is really interesting to me. I mean, a little bit shocking to me. Like, I can't believe it. Like, I don't know how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of hate the stories, you know, for, for cultural reasons, I kind of hate the stories that are like, how does she do it? But I'm also like, how does she do it? Like, I, really I know. Don't. Like, but when we ask it, we want to know the nuts and bolts. <laughs> I want to know the nuts and bolts. I want to know who starts the bedtime. Does their bedtime seem to go for multiple hours as my bedtime seems to go to? Like, that's what I want to know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, And who's watching the kids while who's cooking dinner? And who's doing, yeah, all of the details. 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like how old were they before you could kind of multitask when they were in the bath? Like that's what I want to know. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and I mean, the entire communications team at the White House are all moms with young kids. You know, the White House deputy chief of staff, like the economist, like it's really, it's really, it, it's so interesting and it's so exciting to me. I mean, you know, part of why I've talked about this in a couple of the different conversations that I've had, but part of what led me, I think, down this path of hosting a podcast and having a policy conversation is that I got pregnant with my first child. And so, and I opted not to go work on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign because I didn't think I could do it when mm -hmm. I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was possible for someone to be pregnant and have a young child on a campaign. Those two things could not exist at the same time. And there were one or two in relatively senior levels on the Clinton campaign. Four years later on the Biden campaign, it was pervasive. Yeah. And yeah. that translated into the White House. And that is still shocking to me to be honest yeah um but so it that really shocking. impacts yeah it, is, it is because it's i mean it's it's so advantageous there are so many benefits that most people have no idea that is going to come from this in terms of right. addressing what normal people are dealing with in the world and i'm shocked simply because i've never seen this kind of table makeup. I've never seen this happen. And I know the conversations that you're probably in on a little bit are so profoundly different than they were a year ago, even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even five years ago, you know, under the end of the Obama administration, there was still, there wasn't, interestingly, I'm pretty sure there wasn't actually a formal maternity leave policy in the White House until his reelection. Because like in his first term, there wasn't actually a formal policy. I'm pretty sure um, because the staff was young. They had come off the campaign. And so it was, it was, you know, what I had kind of thought that like once you got pregnant, you kind of couldn't stay. Um, and that really changed actually with Valerie Jarrett as the, I think she's deputy chief of staff in the White House. She was the one that really made a point. I interviewed her and asked her exactly this point. And she said that one of her senior staffers had come to her and said, you know, we need to think about sunsetting me out in the next six months because I want to start a family. And she said, that's exactly the wrong way to be approaching this problem. I need to figure out how I can keep you here if you're starting a family. And so, you know, we need to rearrange the hours, whatever it needs to be, get you the support because I need your brain in this mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. And that, that's how we should be approaching it is that not mm -hmm. how much do we lose by hours, but how much do we gain by being able to keep, not only do I want the best person in the job, I want someone who knows how to multitask it. Like I yeah. want someone who knows how to cut down the kind of bullshit hours, you know, <laughs> to get right. to the meat of it. Like right. that's very appealing to me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the COVID relief bill. Now, and m most of us have been primarily focused on the stimulus checks. What yeah. else is in there that benefits families? Yeah. And with good reason, a lot of people didn't focus on the stimulus checks. You know, a lot of people really needed that because of their job loss situations, their, their incomes in their family. So, you know, Biden went into this saying shots in arms, checks and inboxes. Like those are the things that we need to focus on. And so that was really the crux of moving it forward. You know, it was 7.5 billion to track and administer COVID vaccines, 
46 billion towards tracing and diagnosis, like 2 billion in testing and supplies. So there's a lot there for vaccine, like shots in arms, shots in arms, like get people out there. And that has pretty drastically picked up in the last couple of weeks since the bill was passed. I got um, my know, first one. Okay, how, you, how did you feel? Uh, a little bit ahead of a wee head of the woozy after the first one. Mm-hmm. So, woozy. and I got a Pfizer shot, and uh, so we'll see what happens with shot two. And my, I actually, mm-hmm. my daughter just got the Johnson and Johnson the other day, one and done, but she also um, probably had COVID in New York back last February, and boy, she got hit like a train wreck. With, mm. with the Johnson and Johnson, but I hear that that is not uncommon. If you've you get that kind of a reaction if you have had COVID, yeah, I, we definitely yeah. saw that too. Most yeah. of my family, I mean, I we're from New York. Most of my family had COVID, um, yeah, like right at the beginning. And people did you get it? Of, well, I tested positive for antibodies afterwards, so I uh-huh. think probably yes. Yeah, um, but I never had symptoms. I also had just had a baby, so you know, I felt terrible. Like, so <laughs> like clap anyways, who knows? <laughs> Was who could have really just saying go? <laughs> I guess like fatigue, headache, like what could it possibly be? <laughs> um, but, you know, back to the COVID relief bill, you know, the vaccine is in there. A lot of payments to be bolstering that. And even just coordination and getting vaccine to states has increased. Mm-hmm. Um you know, then there was the direct payments to, so it's $1,400 to millions of Americans who qualified for it. Then there's also like jobs and economy piece. Like there's a $7.25 billion for small business loan. That was the PPP, the Pay Tech Protection Program. $25 billion towards new grant programs for restaurants through the Small Business Administration. So really focusing on, you know, we're getting, getting shots in the arms, opening back up, like making sure those businesses who have been held on but the skin of their teeth can actually get through. Um, and there's a lot there for education because this is actually, I think, the, the, the big piece of having parents at the table. Parents really can't work until kids are in school and in school safely. Yeah. You know, a lot of teachers are also parents. Like they need to be in school safely. And because there was no, you know, real national standards and support for it, like it just really didn't happen across the country this year. So, so the COVID relief bill has $128 billion in grants to state education um, agencies. And it also had $15 billion in funds for child care and development block grant programs. So many child care centers have had to close. Yeah over the last yeah. year yeah. and the ones that are open have, you know, so there, there may not be something locally accessible to you now for childcare or if it's there, the prices have shot up, so then it becomes financially inaccessible. So, and these are women owned businesses. These are women of color owned businesses. So getting money in there to the childcare and development centers um, to try to keep them open. Yeah. Uh, and then there was also, financial assistance. So, you know, extending the 300 weekly unemployment and expanding child tax credit of up to $3,600 per child. So that was a big one. That was something they were saying could be one of the biggest things to eradicate child poverty. Um, And it's for a year. So I think that's going to end up being like the big question of if that stays. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot to pack into it. That's a lot. Yeah. There was a lot in there and they did it very quickly they, they sure got did. through <laughs> yeah so you know it's both through houses signed into law and now it's being it's, it's out there 
So the tone of your online conversations and podcasts have changed considerably with President Biden in office. Um, and, you know, we, we were discussing earlier that it feels like the urgency to be an advocate, to have hard conversations, it's dialed down a bit. You know, we're all sort of relaxing, odd to say, but it's, 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 it's changed the way that people are thinking about, talking about, and approaching government, or at least a lot of people. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that too and how your podcast conversations are changing. Yeah. I mean, I think most people are exhausted by the Trump era. It yeah. was exhausting. It was bludgeoning. You know, it was bludgeoning. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything, the, the, the policy conversations that I had when he was still president, you know, comparing like a possible democratic platform to his, we actually have to, had to start editing the conversations at some point because every policy I ex expert I spoke to said, this is the worst thing we could have possibly imagined for healthcare, for climate, for mm -hmm. education. And, and I almost was worried about exhausting our audience who wanted mm -hmm. policy conversations. And, you know, we, we are exhausted and we worked really, really hard on the last couple of elections. You know, everything from the midterm congressional election to the presidential to the Georgia runoff. Like we worked really hard and just mentally as human beings, like we just need a little bit of a respite. Like we just need to breathe. Yeah. And it feels like I think for a lot of people, it feels like the difference between what Biden is executing versus what like hard engagement would look like is not such a huge bridge. You know, there's not so much light between the two. And so it feels like an opportunity um, to like take the foot off the gas. But I actually think for a lot of other people, it's been incredibly exhilarating. And they've really mm -hmm. harnessed their power in a way they never had before. You know, not only are we seeing parents of young children, I'd actually mention that it's not only mothers of young children that are in the White House. It's also um, LGBTQ parents, two-parent two, um, two male households, and some young da dads with young kids in the White House. And I hope they are taking on the equal responsibilities. But, you know, it's, it's not just in the White House, but it, they're running for office. Yeah. Parents of young children are running for office in ways they never have before. They're running for tax collector. They are running for local school board. They are engaging. They are managing campaigns of their friends. Like people are engaging in ways they really never had before. And I feel like the big conversation that's coming up in terms of Washington policy right now is the large infrastructure bill that Biden wants to pass through. And what counts as infrastructure? And what's turned out to be the most discussed piece of that is that Biden proposed, yes, roads, yes, bridges, yes, schools, yes, broadband. But he also proposed childcare infrastructure. Yeah. And yeah. to a lot of traditional political commentators, they pointed to that bill, and Republicans, I would say. I mean, also, also Republicans. They pointed to that bill and said, you're joking, that's not infrastructure. And for the first time, people pointed back and said, yes, it is. Try now, Look at what happened it. in this year. Look what happened this year. If if the pandemic didn't prove that childcare is infrastructure, then what do you need to see? Our economy unraveled without without child yeah. without childcare, yeah. um, and so that is actually gearing up, I think, to be the biggest debate in in the infrastructure bill. And that's a place where I think you know a lot of a lot of regular people who are struggling again to find a place to decide if they want to engage politically or not. But they did feel fired up and felt good about it. 
you know, to start calling their members of Congress or writing emails to their members of Congress and saying, hey, look, I really care about child care as, as being considered as part of infrastructure. And I hope that you're going to fight for it when it gets mm-hmm. on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a very tangible and real thing for people to engage with that's happening right now. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people who are really excited about the opportunity to fight for something instead of defending against destruction. You know, like, yeah, yeah, it's it's like, okay, we can build now. We can we can heal a little bit and we can build what we really, really want. And it feels so gratifying to actually see something happen, to feel like you're you're moving towards something like the kind of society that we feel like will actually we'll be able to thrive in, our kids will be able to thrive in and make progress. And it feels so good because yeah. before, you know, when you were fighting against little wins, it just kind of stopped the bleeding. It didn't feel that gratifying. Right. And then something else would come down the pike, you know, in the next news cycle that would start the hemorrhage all over again. The next tweet, the yeah. next tweet around the corner yeah. was exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you had your ultimate wish list, What do you hope will happen with this administration? Wow, that's such a good question. Sometimes I get so mired in the details. I'm like, well, child care is infrastructure. (laughs) I Um, want, I want, I'll tell you my answer. Yeah. I I want it to be that um, women start running the world. (laughs) Yeah, I'm there with you. (laughs) That's all I really want. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm 100% there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. 100% there. I mean, I feel like we need to, you know, we'd started our conversation this way, but but one of the things that I just I just feel so strongly about that is that unless we take this as an opportunity to really think about how do we have the kind of society we want to live in where we can work and raise our families and unless we create policy incentives um, we're going to lose this moment and we're going to go backwards, but we actually do have an opportunity to really be creatively rethinking about it. And that's everything from, you know, how we attach our healthcare to our employment and, you know, how do we organize, how do we provide for our parents? Cause so many people are caring for their parents and their children at the same time. Like, you know, it's all, it's all of that. How do we really rethink that? That's what, right. that's what I'm excited about. I am too. I think it's going to happen. And my, I, um, my first, choice was I wanted Kamala Harris. And then when she dropped out, I wanted Elizabeth Warren. And then when she dropped out, I wanted whoever would win. And now I feel like, oh, we've got a pretty nice ticket here. I think that (laughs) probably we needed President Biden to be exactly who he is at this time. And with Kamala Harris right there, um, I, I am very optimistic about the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I'll, I will divulge a conversation that I have not divulged publicly before, but, um, I'm (laughs) some dirt here. Um, I am very close with Cory Booker. He, uh, officiated my wedding and Mm. lived with me for a period of time. I've Mm -hmm. known him for a long time. And so when he was thinking about running for president, we were talking about it. And I said, I have to be honest with you. I don't know who wants this job. Like, I don't think the presidency is going to, I think Trump broke the presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is going to be so terrible for the person who is the president. I can't imagine actually wanting to do it. And as your friend, I don't want that for you. Like, I want you to be the president, but I don't want that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, he clearly felt differently and thought it seems okay. 
but 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 it turns out like Biden's kind of that guy. Yeah, like his, he is. Yeah, his um his approval ratings among registered Democrats are higher and have been consistently higher than Trump's approval ratings among Republicans were his entire presidency. Yeah. So, you know, Biden's just kind of not like not listening to everything, like not listening to the noise and barreling on through and you know, shots and arms and checks and yeah. checks and inboxes and yeah. And I think yeah. he's kind of neutralizing it and paving it the way for for women to run the world. Yeah, great. And it's happening quickly. I'm so grateful. Yeah. yeah. Well, what else do you want listeners to know before we let you off the hook today? Um, I feel like we're all going to come out of this year a little bit different than we went into it. Um, and knowing that that we do have the opportunity to be powerful in our communities and speaking up for what we really need to prioritize is something that we all have the capability of doing and not just being exhausted. I'm exhausted too. Yeah. I'm sitting in my closet, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but to think about, you know, I, I think we all have felt what our silver linings are this year and knowing that we, there actually can be policies connected to that. So engaging with the policymakers uh, who inspire us and who could actually get us the policies that can help us preserve these silver linings. You know, I've connected with these unbelievable young parents, young mothers, um, you know, the mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania, Paige Cognetti did the inter- my interview with her during her daughter's bedtime. She's, she's one year old. The mayor of Phoenix, Kate Gallego managed the beginning of the COVID outbreak from her home alone with her three-year-old son when Phoenix was like the domestic epicenter. Yeah. You know, Jennifer Carol Foy is running for governor of Virginia right now. She's running to be the first black woman elected governor in the country. And it would be from a Southern state. And she has four-year-old boy twins and she's doing it. Like the fact that these women are stepping up and that they took this moment to lean into power and say, yes, yeah. I should be yeah. the one making the decisions just leaves me feeling unbelievably inspired and excited for the future. Me too. Women, we get the job done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, normally we would close up shop here with our rapid fire roundup questions, but you get credit for having answered them last year when you were on and we'll have our, <laughs> our listeners go back and listen to that episode. And uh, yeah, let's make sure that they can find the, the podcast. So the podcast is called Your Political Playlist. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Your Political Playlist, um, and on Instagram under the handle at Your Political Playlist, where not only are my conversations shorter now than they used to be, uh, but they're live. I do them on Instagram live. So if you want to follow the, um, the Instagram account, you can join our conversations and we take questions from the audience and it's super fun. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Emily, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us about it. I really, really appreciate your expertise and your knowledge and the fact that you are in your closet with three kids, hopefully not killing each other out there. I, I haven't heard any blood curdling screams or loud thuds. I have heard nothing. It's amazing. I think the kids are all right. I know. I think they're okay. Well, thank you for letting me come on to talk about both block grants and breastfeeding. That is a first for me in one conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) All right. We'll talk again down the road. Yeah. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. 
Okay, that's it for a while, listeners. Thanks again for being part of this conversation. Thank you to Emily Tish Sussman for today's chat. Thanks also for picking up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever you buy your books. And though we're taking a break, you can still email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner, and find us over on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics. And of course, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. We'll talk again down the road. Bye, everybody.